thought I was going to get a little more of a heads up than my name on the screen. Um, is everybody supposed Yes, please stand as you were able for the reading of God's word. I will be reading it in German. I think that's English. Hoffen wir aber auf etwas, das wir noch nicht sehen können. Dann warten wir zuversichtlich darauf, dass es sich erfüllt. Dabei hilft uns der Geist Gottes in all unseren Schrecken und Nöten. Wissen wir doch nicht einmal, wie wir beten sollen, damit es Gott gefällt. Deshalb tritt Gottes Geist für uns ein. Er bittet für uns mit einem Seufzen, wie es sich nicht in Worte fassen lässt. Und Gott, der unsere Herzen durch und durch kennt, weiß, was der Geist für uns betet. Denn im Gebet vertritt der Geist die Menschen, die zu Gott gehören, so wie Gott es möchte. Das eine aber wissen wir. Wer Gott liebt, dem dient alles, was geschieht zum Guten. Dies gilt für alle, die Gott nach seinem Plan und Willen zum neuen Geleben erwählt hat. This is God's word. Please be seated. Uh, my name is Phil. There we go. How are you doing? All right, we'll get that figured out, hopefully. I'm Brian. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Trinity City Church. Um, should we switch? All right, we'll switch. We'll switch. Handheld mic today. Testing, testing, testing. All right, thanks, guys. All right, we'll figure this out together, okay? Say a prayer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. As you see, uh, kids are being dismissed for Children's Church. Uh, reminder to parents to pick them up right before, right after you take communion. Um, one of the things they're learning about in the stories and the lessons that they're doing is they're learning a little bit about idolatry uh, and repentance in some of the stories that they're learning from Scripture. Uh, if you're just joining us this Sunday for the first time, we are in a uh, middle of a sermon series called Out of Context, where we look at various verses that are commonly taken out of context, and where we look at them in context so that we can see the beautiful and rich meaning of these verses. And the point, again, isn't to make us feel bad for, for taking verses out of context or to make us hesitant about reading and applying God's word, but hopefully the reverse, that it would encourage us to look at verses in context, to know how to do it, and then to see the full and rich meaning once we do that. So Romans 8.28 is the verse that we're going to look at today. I'll highlight in a moment what it, what it is, why it's taken out of context. Before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for the gathering of these brothers and sisters here this morning. These are your sons and daughters that you've adopted in Jesus Christ, and your spirit is at work in their life. No matter what they're facing, the good, the bad, the ups, the down, Lord, you are present in their life. You are helping them. You are for them. And you are working all things to your purposes and your future hope. Just help us to see that today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 
So as I mentioned, Romans 8.28 is a very common verse that's quoted in our context, and that verse says, let me read it here for in a second here, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So that verse will often show up, if you've experienced hearing this verse perhaps out of context, it will often show up in a uh, moment, an experience of crisis, where you're going through something that's painful, something that's making you feel just weak, and your world's coming undone, and then this verse is one that might be quoted to you uh, by a friend, and you could be uh, just lost a job, you got laid off, or you had a health diagnosis that was devastating, or you lost a loved one, and this is type of, the type of verse that's kind of quoted in those situations, but often how it's quoted and applied is misunderstood and misapplied. The common understanding, I think, when it's uh, given in those types of situations is that it essentially means, hey, all things are going to work out. It's going to be fine. It's going to all work out in the end. Everything, when it's all wrapped up, when everything's all said and done, there's going to be a bright side to this. And the reason why, uh, and this was one of the verses when I kind of pulled the congregation about what kind of verses you want me to look at, this is probably the top one if I remember right, because you've probably been in situations where that landed on you in this way, and it was actually soul-crushing. You're like, what? I don't want to hear that verse right now. I don't want to hear that all things are going to work out, because if you lost a job, you're, you're like, I don't want it to work out. I want to go back to work. Or if you had a terrible health diagnosis, you're just like, I don't want it to work out. I just want my health back or my loved one back. That's what I want right now. I don't want some type of like truism. I, I want things to be restored. And that's kind of the way that we react in those situations. And it raises this question about Romans 8.28, what happens when it doesn't work out the way that we had hoped? Our loved one doesn't come back, or the health diagnosis gets worse, or you don't get the job that you hoped and dreamed of. Does that mean that Romans 8.28 is an unkept promise at best, or at worst, a straight-up lie? Or, and this is what we're going to explore, is it misunderstood and taken out of context in situations like this? And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Romans 8.28 within the whole context. I wish I could go through the whole chapter, Romans 8, in detail, because it's such a rich chapter of the scriptures. I remember in college going to a church that took about a year just in Romans 8. We're not going to do that today, and I'm going to barely touch on uh, some of the verses in Romans 8 outside of verses 18 through 30, because that's what we're really going to zero in on. But let's set up a little bit of what's going on in Romans 8 to try to put Romans 8.28 in its proper context. Back in Romans 8.1, Paul writes this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, because what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection, we are set free from sin and death. There's nothing that's going to condemn us, condemn the Christian, because God considers us righteous and justified in Christ. That's what his argument has been. And we're not only declared righteous because of justification, Paul says we're also considered children because of adopted. We're sons and daughters of God. That's, that's the good news. That's some good gospel proclamation. And then Paul writes this in verse 17. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs, with, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in his glory. So now Paul mentions suffering. Yes, we're presently justified. Yes, we're presently adopted. But 
we also experience suffering as we wait for something more glorious in the future. And this raises a question, I think, for Paul, and that's likely what he's trying to address here in verses 18 and following. And the question might be something like this. How can Christians stay hopeful for the future when there is so much suffering and death presently? That's what Romans 8 is tackling. How can Christians stay hopeful for the future when there is so much suffering and death presently? And now we get into verses 18 and following. Romans 8, 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. One of the ways through this world uh, for all of us that we will experience is going to be no different than Christ's way through the world. We will go through this world in a similar way that Christ did, namely, before he was glorified, raised from the dead, everlasting, uh, uh, resurrected life, he suffered. He went through suffering first. Christ's experience included abandonment, false charges, abuse, and death, Yet after that suffering, after his death, Jesus is gloriously raised from the dead, and that's the framework that Paul has in mind here. Paul is applying it to the Christian life. In this life, Paul assures us, you will face suffering and death, but it's not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to happen when God wraps up everything in Christ. Future glory, in other words, does not remove present suffering. It's something to look forward to, but just because you have this hope of future glory does not mean you get out of present suffering right now. That isn't the way of Jesus. Jesus went to the cross before he was glorified. Let's see how Paul unpacks this answer a little bit more. Verses 19 through 23. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoptions to sonship the redemption of our body. So Paul here is describing that all creation is groaning because of sin and suffering. When sin first entered the world, it not only impacted humanity, it impacted everything around us. Everything around us is subjected to frustration, Paul says, and of course we too are experiencing that, and we too are groaning because of this experience of pain, frustration, and suffering. Yet one day this will no longer be the case, Paul says. God will liberate all of creation along with his children, and they all will be set free. But right now, that's not what we experience. Right now, we experience the suffering and this death, and like, it just feels like creation is just becoming undone. But one day, our bodies will be redeemed and glorified through the resurrection. And you should note the honest description of this tension between those two. Do you see some of the words that Paul was using? He says, presently things are painfully falling apart, but unimaginable glory is coming. So when you're in between those two tensions, what's it like to experience that? It's the sense of eagerness. 
this sense of longing, that you want that time to come, you want this to cease, you want to get on the other side of suffering so you can experience glory unimaginable. So that's the description of our experience right now. It's, it's not this like naive optimism, it's this real tension that, man, I hope that this isn't forever. I want this to be done. And Paul illustrates this point with childbirth. Why? Because the experience of childbirth is a combination of pain, yet a coming joy. Or to say it a different way, it's the present experience of suffering, yet a future of hope because of this life that's being brought into the world. Now, Obviously, myself and Paul speak as someone who has only witnessed a situation of bringing life into the world through birth. And, and it, it is, having, some, having been a person that has seen it, it's, it's a very, very vivid uh, illustration that he is using right now. And if it's vivid for me, I can't imagine what it's like for the mothers in the room to he- read that verse. I, it reminded me of just, um, just the, the sheer strength of, of will of fortitude, of, of patience to want to lean into something that's so intense for what the outcome is going to be. Uh, when Tracy and I were, were dating, um, I don't know if you were like this with, with when you're dating your now spouse, uh, but we talked about kids and what the number would be, right? And, and fortunately, we were both on the same page. We both said four. We wanted four kids. And I remember having an experience that when we went from two kids to three, that was rough. For us, I know some of you have probably hit it out of the park. For us, that was rough to go from two to three. You're going from man-to-man defense to zone defense, and that was a rough transition, right? It was, and we didn't know what to do after that. We were just like, man, this is hard. And we, we had a moment where we waffled about the number four. Like, mate, should we go for it? Or should we not? And we really didn't know. And it came to the point that my wife was like, I think we should go, go for it. And I had my doubts, but I had this kind of realization, like, who am I to be like, no, honey, I don't know about this. Like, having another kid is pretty tough, right? <laughs> like, like, does the fella have any room to say something like that? Like, I, I knew, like, if she's saying yes, she went through far more incredible pain and sacrifice than I did to bring children into this world. I remembered that she, I, I was there and I saw it. And, and, and our kids, like, we, we, most of them were over eight pounds when they were born, right? Our firstborn kid was 10 pound, four ounce baby, right? So what am I gonna be like, oh, sweetheart, I don't know if I can handle this again, right? No, no. But it also raises the question like, why go for four? Like, and, and I remember her saying uh, with previous kids, that, and maybe even with number four, of why to think through it this way, she's like, yeah, it, it hurts, you know, bring, bringing the child in the, the world and burying it and carrying the child and, and giving birth, but then they put that child in, in your arms. And all the suffering that you went through, just in that moment, you just have sheer joy in that moment. That's the illustration that Paul is using, and it's not... And, and, and there's so many other ways to, to apply that to different things in life. That you can go through a situation of sheer pain and suffering, but, but something hopeful and joyful may be accomplished on the other side of it. That's why Paul is giving that illustration. So Paul goes on in Romans 8, 24 through 25 to say this is what hope is all about. For in this is hope. We were saved. But hope that is, not, is seen is no hope at all. 
Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So what does this mean for the here and now, though? This is talking about all this glory that's far off, so is it just we just need to grin and bear it, get through it by ourselves? No, Paul's going to go on and get very pastoral in the coming verses to say to us that the way that the gospel can minister to us the here and now as we're experiencing this incredible suffering is to wait patiently with hope and fortitude. And he highlights two different areas that this happens in the here and now. It's by prayer and by acknowledging the providence of God. Let's look, first look at prayer. Romans 8, 26 through 27 says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Uh, we talked about this verse last week, and one of the things that I love about the honesty of Scripture is that it says that prayer is hard. Prayer is hard. We don't know what to pray for sometimes, especially when you're going through seasons of soul-crushing suffering and everything in life seems to be coming undone. Sometimes you don't know what to say. You don't feel like praying. Or if you are, are sitting in the presence of God, you're just like, I don't, I don't have any words. I don't have anything to say to the Lord. I don't even know what to say. It's hard for me to process these things or make, make, uh, wrap my mind around them. And in those situations, Paul is saying, it's okay if you don't have the words. It does not mean that prayer is pointless if you don't have words to put to prayer. And even if you don't know what to say, Paul writes, the Holy Spirit is helping you in your helplessness. We may not know what to say, but the Holy Spirit does. And the text even uses this phrase, wordless groans, which connects back to that longing for redemption and renewal, but they're wordless because you are literally probably sitting there speechless in this time of prayer. You have nothing to say. You're, you're, you're experiencing such incredible pain that you, don't, you can't even put words to it in prayer. And that does not mean that such a time is pointless. If you're going through a time of weakness and suffering, you don't have to know what to say, the text says. You can just sit there in God's presence silently because every person of the Holy Trinity is there to help you in that moment. The Lord knows your heart. Jesus promises to answer our prayers, especially since the Spirit is giving our wordless groans, words that are taken before God, that are taken there, and giving words that are according to God's will. One of the ways I thought about this type of experience in such a divine, amazing sense, to try to make sense of it maybe with an earthly analogy, is like think about a relationship, maybe you have a friendship, uh, some type of relationship like this where it's the type of friendship that's so close, so long, they know you so well that you can be going through something that's so incredibly difficult that you can be quiet, you don't want to talk about it, you just have to just sit there in silence, but the friend shows up and isn't getting you to talk, they just know what to do. You don't even have to ask them to do, like they, they just know you so well, how to minister to you in that moment, what you really need in that moment, and they just, you don't even have to ask, you don't even have to say anything, they, they just know what to do. If you're going through pain, maybe they know, like you need, to, you need to get out, you need to laugh, 
Or maybe they know, like, if you're going through this, this incredible amount of suffering that, man, just, you need to rest, you need a nap. Or, or I know, like, sometimes for me, like, when I've gone through stuff, like, sometimes I just need a cookie dough blizzard, right? And, but some of the times, like, sometimes it's just, like, little things like that. But you have friends that know with very specific accuracy, even if you don't say it, they just show up to your house with some type of gift of common grace because they know you so well. And even if you've had a taste of that in a human relationship, we also know that friends often in our times of suffering don't get it right, and they misfire, and they don't know what to do. But your Heavenly Father, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He knows exactly what to do. He knows exactly what you need with 100% accuracy. And even if you've never had a human relationship like I just described, you do, in this moment right now, have a heavenly relationship that knows exactly what you need, even if you can't say it in words. That's one of the things that Paul says. So he, he highlights prayer to say, if you're going through a season of suffering, it's okay if you don't have words. So it's okay if you don't know what to say or what to ask for. That is okay because the, the Lord knows what you need. That's the intimacy and the help that we have in these moments. And then the text goes on to the verse that's often taken out of uh, context where it talks about God's providence. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now let's stop at verse 28 and just lean into that because that's the verse we're looking at in context. The all things here is anything that's part of life, both good and bad. And as we experience life in all things and in every area, God is working, the text says, for good. This is the doctrine of providence that Christians talk about, that God is governing everything according to his good will. And what is the good, that's the key word, I think, that God is working? That's the part that's often misunderstood in quoting this verse. The good that God is working isn't some type of worldly or blind platitude where all things are going to work out exactly how we picture it in our mind. That's not the promise here. It's not a promise that we may experience hard times, but eventually things will get better or that eventually we'll see a bright spot to things. That's not what the promise is. That's not guaranteed by this verse. And then you have to go on to verses 29 through 30 to start to get the details about what Paul means by this good plan that God is working out. It says, For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So here's the general sense of what he's getting at here by the good plan God is working out. God is going to bring us to glory someday. That's guarantee. And there's nothing that's going to stop the advancement of that plan. And this glorified end that he has in mind is that he's going to raise his people from the dead where they will live in a new heaven and new earth, and in that place there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain or injustice anymore. Those are old things, and they are now gone. And on that day, we will love and enjoy God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength forever and ever and ever. That's the glorified end 
that he has in mind. But then he, just notice how Paul does this. He's not just saying this is just something that will happen in the future. It's guaranteed in the past and being work it, working out in the present. It's, it's all consuming in that way. It says that God foreknew us. In other words, God knew us before we were even before we even existed. And this is not know, like it's not that God knew things about us. This, this word know there means he knows you intimately in a relational sense, that, that he knows you, he loved you before you even existed. And not only did he foreknow us, he predestined us, that is, God decided beforehand, even before we had faith in the gospel, that he would justify us to bring us into future glory because of the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Or as First John puts it in a similar way, we love God because he first loved us. He initiated this process. He's in charge of this process. And predestined for what? The verse says to be conformed to the image of his son, that we are becoming more and more like Jesus according to God's plan, and that we are in fact called by God's sovereign grace to have open ears and open hearts to embrace the gospel. And because we are called by God, we are also justified, that is declared righteous in the courtroom of God, and we are justified. And because we are justified, Paul says, you will also be glorified. And the point here, what you're trying to, what you're trying to capture here in these verses is that this is a chain that belongs together and can never be broken. Because of what God has determined in eternity past, what he's working out right now, what he has promised for the future, nothing can derail it, nothing can break it. And one of the things that God is offering us through his word in these verses is, is not an answer to every single question you might have as you struggle through suffering. But what he is offering us is the answer to a very ultimate and important questions. It's as if Paul is saying, like, I can't answer all the questions. Indeed, we can't know all the details of why this is happening to you. Why are you going through this? What are you going to be like on the other side of this? I don't know, but here is what I do know. This does not derail God's ultimate purposes in you. Death does not defeat resurrection. Resurrection always defeats death, and that is the hope of glory for those that pr presently suffer right now. His good plan will be carried out. Amen, church? So that is the promise. That is what we're looking at. And, and it's one of those ways of like if Paul's teaching on prayer during suffering is saying it's okay, you don't have to have the words. The Spirit's got your back. His teaching here on providence is saying it's okay, you don't have to have all the answers to every question you're wrestling with. But here, I'll give you the ultimate answer to the ultimate question that God's purposes will not be derailed by anything in heaven and earth. They will be carried out, and his promise of renewal and glory will be carried out. When I was, I was uh, studying this um, set of verses this week in my time of morning prayer, uh, there was a psalm that came up that really captures what Paul is getting at here. This is from Psalm 119.50, and it says, My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. That's what this promise is doing. It's providing comfort in suffering, not necessarily trying to explain it away, offer a platitude. It's offering comfort because when 
these things hit us in our life, it does not derail the promises of God. And in those moments when everything seems to be changing around you, the changelessness of God is there to offer comfort because of his promises will be fulfilled. So let me uh, conclude with maybe more of a, a personal reflection of how this uh, looks like in my life to hopefully uh, connect with you a little bit if you are, are, are going through it right now. Maybe you are in, find yourself in the valley. What does Romans 8.28 tell us? Uh, as many of you know, I, I had a battle with cancer in 2019, and I remember going through the diagnosis process uh, very optimistically because in my head, head, and this is kind of how I always um, approached life in really anxious situations, I always had this, I would call it almost like a realistic optimism, where it's like, well, I have a swollen lymph node, but it's most likely not cancer. It's probably like I'm sick or it's something, uh, something environmental or maybe something, some weird thing that I got from my dog. Like I literally would think this as I'm going through CT scan and, and ultrasounds and, and biopsies and all that. Like, like oh, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't cancer. That's really unlikely. It's got to it's be something else. And now having been diagnosed with cancer and battled cancer, I'm on the other side of it, it there's this, this type of anxiety now that I struggle with because I can't necessarily just go back to this kind of optimism that I had before because I can't just rely anymore on, well, I mean, the most likely outcome is this. Because now I had experienced a unlikely outcome. The thing, like most of the time when we go to the doctors, it's just like it, it doesn't end up being cancer, right? And that was the framework, but now it's like, well, now I went through it, and that exactly was what the outcome was. And so now as I go through uh, regular PET scans, and by the grace of God, I'm still in remission, there is just this, and the cancer survivors, survivors call it anxiety, that you're just going through this loop in your head where it's just like you can't just rely on it anymore just to say like, oh, this cancer's not gonna come back because there's a very real experiential sense that you know, well, it very well could. It very well could come back. And uh, it was actually like around, shoot, it would have been around about the two-year mark. I was really excited to come here and kind of share a story with you because I had, I had a PET scan around that time and all of them had been clear up in that point. I was, and the two-year mark was such an important tipping point with my specific cancer because if you make it two years, uh, essentially the likelihood of it coming back, if it's like 80% of the cases happens before two years, it drops like to 20% for, for the next three. And then you make it to five and they, they don't monitor it anymore. But I remember that two-year scan came back with some stuff going on. There was some stuff going on in my lymph nodes. And like the PET scan doesn't tell you what it is. It just tells you your body's got something going on. And so then you have to go through more waiting and more tests and more uh, conversations with medical professionals and that sort of thing. So I couldn't come to you at my two-year mark and say, guys, I made it to two years because now I was about to go several months with not knowing if it came back or not. And that's, that's the realism of, of what this anxiety feels like. You're just always on the cusp of like, is the cancer going to return? And you're asking these types of questions. Is it going to return? And if it does return, am I going to make it through this treatment? And, and, and I know the next treatment is going to be far more difficult than the last one. And, and you think about life experiences in different stages of life. Like, well, will I see my kids you know, graduate? Will I walk my daughters down the aisle? Will I, will I, will I get to 
experience that sweet, empty nest life, right? It's just like all, all that type of stuff, and you're just asking these questions after question after question. I remember when I got that result, right, and, 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 and said, like, there's some stuff going on in some of your lymph nodes. I was just utterly destroyed in those, in those weeks, in those months. Um, just to be clear, we've had some other PET scans, and whatever caused it was, has reduced, it's going away. So if it was lymphoma, it would get worse. So good news, I am still officially in remission. Uh, so we made it to the two-year mark, guys, all right? So I, I wanted to tell you that back in February. I get to tell that to you now in, what are we in, October, almost November. Uh, but nonetheless, like question after question in that moment, right? And Romans 8.28 is not a verse that says, you can answer all these questions. It doesn't answer those questions. You all have all these questions that you might have. It is saying, regardless of how these things end up unfolding, the most important questions are answered. Romans 8.28 does not answer the question for me, will my cancer return? Will I make it through treatment if it does? And do I get to enjoy every stage of life that maybe many people get to enjoy? It doesn't answer. I have no answers to those questions. But what I love about Romans 8, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up this sermon by just reading Romans 8, 31 through 39, because just notice all the questions that Paul does ask that he says we do have answers to these, and they are the most important questions for any type of season of suffering that you find yourself in. So these are the questions that we do get answers for. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ, who, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he's also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or a lit-up PET scan? No. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And those are the answers we have, brothers and sisters. Can I get an amen? Amen. As we do each and every week.